1: I'm Adam Coleman. Welcome back to the Cosmic Library. We're going to spend some time in the Hall of the Monkey King. you ever get the feeling that breaking rules, getting into trouble, gives you some glimpse of a better way, or at least a genuine way? Something that maybe only a little rule-breaking can access? In the Cosmic Library, the whole point is to ponder idiosyncratic ways through the mystery of things. We go into massive books and then follow tangents prompted by those books. Our guiding notion is that these infinity books give you so many possibilities for finding your own way into and out of them. And strange, original, or yes, even rascally ways through that richness are helpful for the kind of mind expansion we're after. This season, we're following the ultimate mischief-making superhero, the Monkey King. Protagonist of the 16th century classic Chinese novel, Journey to the West. It's the story of a 7th century monk's mission to retrieve sacred Buddhist texts, helped along by the super-powered Monkey King. It's full of magical feats and blunt comedy, of profound spiritual intimations and satirical play, in a foreword to Julia Lovell's recent translation of Journey to the West, the comic book creator Gene Luen Yang has described the Monkey King's adventures as a source of bedtime stories told to him by his immigrant mother so that he, quote, wouldn't forget the culture that she had left. And Yang, by the way, is author of American Born Chinese, now a Disney Plus streaming show, which weaves Journey to the West into its story. All the books we read in the Cosmic Library have associations with sleep, with dreams, with night, with bedtime, the kind of reading you do when you're about to fall into the mysteries of sleep. So we've talked about Finnegan's Wake, about A Thousand One Nights, about the Hebrew Bible, and we've talked about their fusions of familiarity with unfamiliarity. Sort of like how dreams reconfigure the mundane. And Journey to the West does this too. It directs the reader toward both some dreamily superpowered experience, along with the most familiar sorts of experience. Low comedy and spiritual traditions collide, there's a pragmatic attitude towards spirituality and transcendence And there's a clear joy found in this rambunctious approach to power, to beyondness. Here's Karen Fang, from whom we'll hear more in later episodes.
0: So Journey to the West is one of these um, key classical narratives or classical texts in the sort of Chinese language heritage, and and one of the best known narratives in the world just because of its demographics, right? Journey to the West is full of sort of comic, and I, I have kind of like low bathos, right? A lot of sort of what we would call today as body humor. I mean, the protagonist is not a sort of noble character, but, you know, the monkey, right? The sort of trickster figure.
1: Julia Lovell's recent translation, titled Monkey King, conveys the humor of it all especially clearly. And she conveys the stakes and qualities of Journey to the West in this very series, starting now.
2: It's a hundred chapter novel. It was first published in the version that's read today in 1592, when China was ruled by the Ming dynasty. The hero of the book is a magic monkey king called Sun Wukong, who I abbreviate to monkey in my translation. The first seven chapters show how Monkey becomes an immortal and acquires superpowers so he can travel 108,000 miles in one leap, he can transform himself and his hairs into pretty much anything he likes. And he has a fearsome weapon, a gold-hooped staff that can defeat anyone and that can grow and shrink according to his orders.
1: There's something like a superhero here, except this sort of transcendence comes back down to earth in the Monkey King's case. A divine order steps in to keep him in line. Then we see one of his more potent superpowers, tireless troublemaking.
2: Monkey is brought low by his mischief and arrogance. The Jade Emperor, the ruler of heaven in the Chinese religious Taoist universe, tries to bring him to heel by inviting him to heaven and fobbing him off with various lowly jobs like uh, looking after horses or looking after the peaches of immortality. But Monkey always ends up getting into trouble, making trouble. Eventually, there's a huge bust-up in which Monkey eats and drinks all the immortal peaches, wine and elixirs for a big banquet, and then he runs away.
1: Julia Lovell reads here from her translation of the spiritual realm's confrontation with the Monkey.
2: So this passage from the book is a um, shouting match between Monkey and Heaven's generals. The heavenly spirits start by shouting at monkeys, rank-and-file soldiers, who are a bunch of you know, incredibly naughty and disrespectful uh, simians. Okay, off we go. Puny demons, roared one of the spirits. Where is your leader? We are God's dispatch to subdue the rebellious monkey. Tell him to surrender immediately. The merest whisper of resistance and will turn the lot of you into baboon butter. The panicked monkeys rushed into the cave to report the uninvited guests. Calamity, great sage. Nine fierce gods are outside saying they've come to subdue you. Just then, Monkey was enjoying a few cups of heavenly wine with 76 of his closest friends. He seemed perfectly unfazed by the news of what was going on outside. Drink your wine while it's warm, he proverbialized. Never mind the brewing storm. Another cohort of monkeys charged over. Those rough gods say they're about to break down the door. Seek not worldly fame or gain, the great sage continued, except wine and verse, all is in vain. Now a third gaggle of monkeys barreled up. They've smashed in the door and are fighting their way into the cave. At this, monkey lost his temper. How rude, and after I treated them so nicely. He ordered the rhinoceros-horned monster kings to lead the other monstrous monarchs into battle, while he and his generals brought up the rear. After the vanguard was quickly bogged down in an ambush set by the nine luminaries of heaven at the mouth of the iron bridge, Monkey extended his staff to 20 feet and threw himself into the fight. Make way for Monkey! The nine luminaries were instantly beaten into retreat. You stole the immortal peaches and the immortal wine. You wrecked the peach festival, then swiped Lao Tzu's immortal elixirs and plundered the divine brewery a second time. They shouted at him after regrouping. What do you have to say for yourself? Stuff happens. Monkey laughed back. What of it?
1: We'll hear more in a later episode about the Taoist spirituality with which Monkey struggles. And it's, of course, not the only spiritual tradition here. Buddhism is a central force in the novel, as it is in so much Chinese literature. Xiao Fei Tian describes that here.
2: The phases of Buddhism, the contemporary kind of beliefs or the discourses or discussions of Buddhism. So they actually in turn inform the writing of poetry and also the um stories, you know, the writing of uh stories.
1: Here's Julia Level on the novel's engagement with the Buddha and Buddhism.
2: After an enormous battle with the heavenly armies, the Jade Emperor has to call the Buddha in, who traps Monkey beneath a mountain until he's learnt better manners. And Monkey remains in prison for 500 years until the Emperor of China sends a Buddhist monk called Tripitaka, or Xuanzang, from China to India to collect true Buddhist scriptures to educate the Chinese. So this is the journey to the West of the title.
1: Xuanzang, also known as Tripitaka, is a historical figure who did, in fact, journey to the West. Max Mormon explains one legacy of that actual journey, and it's a legacy that's especially interesting to
0: us here in this series. Xuanzong's journey is seen both as a kind of physical and temporal and spatial movement, and also a kind of internal, intellectual, visionary imaginative movement, the kind of journey that you make when you read a book about a journey, that you are traveling in your mind. Journey to the West takes Xuanzong's journey as a framework, as a jumping off point, as a skeleton, maybe. But it's much more interested in the internal and imaginative journeys that occur along the way. It's a physical journey, but it's also about a sort of a mental transformation that goes on within the characters who are making the physical journey. It's a spiritual as well as a physical pilgrimage. That's what Journey to the West as a narrative, as a full-blown narrative is exploring, drawing us in and letting us sort of experience those mental transformations and adventures and movement. It's a very literary movement. It's a very imaginative kind of movement. In the
1: novel about Tripitaka or Xuanzang, Julia Lovell explains monsters participate in that imaginative movement.
2: This is a very dangerous journey full of huge mountains, rivers, and man-eating monsters. So the Buddha decides to give Tripitaka some disciples, expert in magic and kung fu, to protect him. Their leader is Monkey, who Tripitaka releases from his prison. There's also a Pigsy, a rice-loving pig demon who can fly with his ears, and Sandy, a depressive river monster. And there's a disobedient dragon too, reincarnated as a horse, but who can also disguise himself as a kung-fu dancing girl. Now, all the disciples have to atone for crimes they've committed by helping the pilgrimage. And with Tripitaka, they travel for 14 years along the routes of the Silk Road, battling monsters of all shapes and sizes. And almost all the monsters want to eat the travellers, especially Tripitaka, because of a belief that his virtuous flesh will confer immortality on them. But eventually the group reach the Buddha's monastery, they gather the scriptures, deliver them back to China, then return to become immortals in the Buddha's monastery. So among many other things, the novel traces Monkey's journey, his personal arc from Hellraiser to Virtuous Buddhist.
1: But this is really a story with multiple spiritual turns and qualities.
2: The spiritual order described and reflected by the book, is also a reflection of the syncretic landscapes of belief of traditional imperial China. In the book, you see at least three different belief systems coexisting with each other. There's Buddhism, of course, which is threaded through the book in the form of this Buddhist pilgrimage. There's also the Taoist religion represented by the Jade Emperor and his sort of government of heavenly officials. I should also say that the magic powers that Monkey has are acquired right at the beginning of the book through an extensive period of Taoist self-cultivation and learning. But you also have a set of social beliefs running through the book, which one might broadly label as Confucian. And one of the really important sort of headline beliefs of Confucian philosophy is filial piety. And that pops up all the way through the book rather amusingly, actually, in the way that the monsters and the demons behave. So there's this running joke that the pilgrims encounter, monster and demon after another, that wants to eat Tripitaka. But they always fail to do this because they always pause before eating him because, like good Confucian, sort of filially pious children, they want to first invite their esteemed parents to enjoy the banquet also. And in the delay that that this sets up, it always gives Monkey time to come up with an ingenious plan to rescue Tripitaka and the other pilgrims.
1: Braiding together these different belief systems, Journey to the West gets at another point about the earthly realm.
2: An important idea here is that the worlds beyond this world heaven and hell, will look pretty much exactly like the mortal world, and especially like the mortal world as governed by the Chinese imperial civil service. In Journey to the West, the arbiters of heaven and hell, of life and death, bear a pretty precise resemblance to earthly Chinese bureaucrats, So, for example, there has to be a permit issued by the proper heavenly department before the river or sea dragons will release rain. And the exact amount is always specified down to the last drop. The novel presents a view of spirituality, of heaven and the afterlife, in which entities like heaven exactly resemble the bureaucratic structures of Chinese earthly government. So the novel showcases this amusingly revealing idea. If you've become an immortal and got to heaven, what could be more heavenly than becoming a civil servant?
1: The funny attention to bureaucracy, to hierarchy, can lead us to think about the novel's historical context.
2: The version read today is the 100 chapter edition of the novel which was first published in 1592 by an entrepreneurial publisher in Nanjing in southeast China. And we think this version was circulating probably a decade or two before that date. But neither the publisher, editor or prefacer of the 1592 edition knew or were willing to admit that they knew who had actually written the book. Because in the 16th century, and and arguably this remains the case until the 20th century, despite the huge fluorescence and popularity of uh, vernacular fiction, this form was still seen by the cultural elite as a somewhat disreputable pastime. So Few respectable literati would want to be publicly associated with it, despite its huge readership. So the literal translation of the Chinese term for fiction is xiao and this literally means lesser discourses. And I think this captures quite nicely this sense of cultural disdain towards the form.
1: So we really don't know 100% who's the author of Journey to the West.
2: Now, the best, although still sketchy, evidence we have about authorship points to a man called uh, Wu chong who lived roughly between 1500 and 1580, and he was definitely a real person. He was the son of a, a silk shop clerk from East China. He wanted to become a government official, like so many of his peers, it's a really important channel to wealth and political, social and cultural prestige. But again, like many of his peers, like the vast majority of his peers, he failed the intensely competitive civil service exams. So he had to get by uh, scraping a living as a literary odd jobber, for example, writing ceremonial greetings in verse and short stories. But I should point out, it wasn't actually till the 20th century that literary scholars started to identify him as author of Journey to the West, and the evidence was mainly circumstantial. So a local guide from Wu's native place listed a Journey to the West, a Xiyuji, among his writings, but we can't be sure whether this is the novel or, for example, a different piece of travel writing. This local guide also described Wu as someone brilliant at writing poetry and humorous prose, both of which are very prominent in the novel. And the novel also happens to contain quite a few turns of phrase particular to Wu's local dialect. We also know that Wu loved tales of the supernatural. But to be honest, we'll probably never know for sure who wrote Journey to the West. I think the best we can say is that a talented writer and or editor with a passion for literary mischief, myth, and the supernatural knitted existing and their own original stories into a single novel in the late 16th century.
1: Thank you for listening to The Cosmic Library. This is just the first episode of a whole season on Journey to the West. Before I roll the credits, I want to ask you to subscribe to our newsletter, cosmiclibrary.substack.com. It's going to bring to your inbox fairly regular deliveries from the realm of our infinity books. Our guests this show have included Julia Lovell, whose Journey to the West translation is titled Monkey King, and D. Max Mormon, scholar of Buddhism at Columbia, Xiao Fei Tian, scholar of Chinese literature at Harvard, and Karen Fang, Scholar of Literature and Cinema at the University of Houston. Thank you as always to LitHub. I'm Adam Coleman. Be sure to come back for the next installment on Spiritual Misadventure and Journey to the West.